Hey there, welcome to night school. Already lost track of the numbers. I guess it's probably 222. I might have gotten it right. I don't know, though. I'm not even going to check. Yeah, you know, I don't like that this show has become overtly political without committing myself to a certain stance for the most part. I think some inevitably a certain stance will come out even if you're non-committal. Uh, but for the most part, I feel this show has been non-committal as far as politics go. And obviously, certain things are of more interest to me or I'm more critical of certain things. I, or I at least respond more on this show to certain things that bother me than others. And in doing that, obviously, it puts me in a certain category in some people's minds. Not necessarily anybody who listens to this, but it just could, in theory, do that. And so I'd like to get away from that, even though all the politics are only going to intensify as November 3rd approaches. See, I know the date. I might have to guess at which episode number my show is on, but I know the date. I know the date when you're supposed to get out and vote. (laughs) Um, What's funny about that is... uh, I got my voter, uh, whatever you my ballot. I hear, I heard it's called a ballot. You know what else they call a ballot? I got your ballot right here. Um, uh, but I got my ballot, and you know, got here, and I'm just looking at it, and I'm like, I don't really want to touch that thing. And that's and not because of the candidates. I just see that thing, and it just looks weak. <laughs> Everybody, you know, it's this, it's this, it gives, it empowers people to vote, you know, and it empowers people to, to tell people to vote. People think that it's their job to empower other people to vote. And I mentioned that recently, I used the term vote signaling, because it is very much like virtue signaling. And, and of course, it's, I mean, it's, it's an amazing privilege to be able to weigh in, to be able to fill in, hey, Batty, come on. This time he's whining at the door. Uh, Maybe he has to use the restroom. Let me pause this. Okay, we're back here. But yeah, it's funny. It's just part of that public persona that people have developed. And I'm sure people always advocated for voting, using your right. And of course, I understand that people haven't always had that right. There were kings who didn't allow you to have a say. They didn't let the peasants have a say. And uh, there are people in in America who didn't have the right to vote. I understand that. So I don't take it for granted. I don't take it for granted that we have the right to vote. But I guess that's the amazing thing about having the right to vote is you can also choose to not participate. But I like the idea of voting by proxy. I like the idea of voting for somebody else. And let me explain what I mean by that. I like the idea of everybody being reassigned to somebody else. Everybody's vote is reassigned to somebody else, where basically you are given a random person's ballot and you have to choose for them. And of course, your ballot is given to another random person who's going to choose for you, too. And I don't know, I, you know, I haven't thought too deeply into this, but I'm on the fence as to whether you get any information about that person or not. Maybe their name, but I was trying to figure, maybe you get some basic information about the person. Maybe just some basic, you know, just a basic profile of who that person is, and you decide to vote for them based on that. Although I like the idea of having no information too. And of course, how this would translate is... You'd vote the way that you would vote, but in somebody else's name. That's how most people would do it. They wouldn't be able to detach themselves from their own wants. But it'd be a good ego exercise to see if you could actually do that. To see if you could actually vote for somebody else in a way that didn't serve your own interests. I believe that would be an interesting exercise. And of course, you know, that phrase, voting by proxy... When something is done by proxy, 
you know, one of the typical versions of that is some sort of vote or decision. This is just, it's, it's just too much right now. Okay, back again. Just one of those days, you know, one of those mornings. Somebody, somebody here is voting by proxy already. Sometimes voting by proxy is just being louder than somebody else. Uh, but I like that idea, though, of having to vote for somebody else. I mean, it'd be a good exercise in dealing with your own ego, you know, in, in speaking on somebody else's, be- on you know, speaking on somebody else's behalf, being like, well, you know, I'm voting in somebody else's name, so am I just going to do what I want to do? And, of course, you know, the less information you have on somebody, the more likely you'd be to do just that is vote for just what you want but it would be interesting as an exercise to actually get some information about that person and vote for the candidate that you think would serve that person's interest best uh, you know and then I mean it's a terrifying thought to imagine somebody else voting on your behalf somebody else voting in your name, especially if that information was public. Because you'd want to know. You would want to know how somebody else voted in your name. A total stranger. Because I'm not talking about parents voting for your kid or you voting for your parents or anything else. Although I, I wondered about that. That crossed my mind where if somebody's incapacitated or... They've mentally deteriorated. Because obviously you hear about ballots of deceased people getting shipped to their house, and so somebody could, in theory, vote for them, assuming that vote ends up getting counted at the end of the day, assuming there's not some process for figuring out the error. But I was wondering if, if, if your parent has dementia or something like that, you know, I wonder how often that happens where somebody just votes on their behalf. And also, for that matter, you know, if somebody's an adult, but let's say they're, I mean, let's say they have Down syndrome. You know, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm making a joke, but this is an honest question. If somebody has Down syndrome, if they have some sort of mental condition, if their brain hasn't developed like other people's, you know, I'm trying to find nice ways of putting this, you know, what happens then? Are, do they vote? I've never heard this come up in my life, and, you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't. In fact, I think they should. But I can't imagine that we don't allow that. I can't imagine that if, if somebody, for example, has Down syndrome, I can't imagine that the government takes away their ballot and says they can't vote. I can't imagine there's a system in place for that, but I don't know about these things. And I'm honestly, I'm not going to Google it. I'm not going to Google, can people with Down syndrome vote? I'm just throwing out the idea because, you know, if somebody has dementia or just anything, anything really that limits their cognitive ability. I mean, some people would say that somebody with Down syndrome is going to vote more honestly and truthfully. That's sort of synonymous. Honestly and truthfully. That sounds dishonest. (laughs) Well, honestly and truthfully. Oh, you want my opinion? Well, honestly and truthfully. It's like if you use too many synonyms in a row, you suddenly sound less honest. Or you're like, you're trying to fit a word count, trying to fill in space. Anyway, though, uh, well, because that would and that would be a reality, actually, as far as my idea of people voting on somebody on a total stranger's behalf, the reality is that your ballot could be assigned to somebody who is cognitively impaired, and they would then vote for you. So that'd be interesting. And uh, I would like it if it was public record, because you would want to know. I mean, there'd be something nice about not knowing. There'd be something nice about not knowing how someone voted for you and you'd just have it you'd always wonder it'd be one of those unanswered questions but i'd also like the idea of eventually maybe after the election it's revealed to you how you voted you find out how you voted and the funny thing about that is that 
people would still get mad at you. The way that people's minds work, somebody would still get mad at you for voting for a certain candidate, even if you personally had no control over who who voted under your name. Even if we all did this, even if we all knew that strangers voted for us, somebody would still find a way to blame you for the way that somebody else voted under your name. That just seems to be, it's just a given that, some, that people would do that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I like this idea. You know, I haven't thought it out too deeply. I haven't figured out, you know, a system... I haven't figured out the way the world should work yet. <laughs> like how I just go from that. I go from being like, I haven't completely figured out this way that people would, total strangers would vote for other people by proxy. You know, they'd be randomly assigned a stranger to vote for. Haven't totally figured that out. Also haven't figured out the way the world it should work. You know, I don't know. I don't know how anybody figures that out. I don't know how anybody... I don't know how anybody has the confidence or arrogance to decide they know what's best. I understand there's a certain amount of consensus. You talk to other people, you pay attention to other people, and together you come up with systems. Together you come up with a way. The way. But a lot of it's just improv. It's inevitably improv. You're inevitably, I mean, that's the thing about being a human being and having confidence in yourself that you know how things should work is that you're basically, you're like a drama kid doing an improv exercise in front of an audience trying to convince people that you're not doing an improv exercise. It's like freestyle rappers who just rap about the objects in the room. It's it's like, uh, oh yeah, I can freestyle. I can freestyle. I know how to freestyle rap. Kitchen table's right here. Refrigerator's over there. <laughs> Got my phone in my hand. You know, it's like, how many times have you heard a freestyle rapper, somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I can freestyle, and, and they're, they're literally just talking about what's around them. They're just looking at things around the room, trying to make them rhyme. Improv. How much improv is just that? How much of our life, how much of us thinking we know how things work, trying to pretend that we've thought all of this out and we have some great understanding, how much of that is really just the same as somebody claiming they can freestyle rap, but just telling people what's around them. I could, you know, this is in my field of vision. Calendars on, I mean, I'm doing it right now. Calendars on the fridge. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the only line to my freestyle, freestyle rap verse is calendars on the fridge. Everybody's waiting for the next line. But that is the funny thing. It's just, it's like trying to convince people that you've thought all of this out, that you have some great ability. And you're, you're really just responding to everything that's in your field of vision. I know what's best. Even though the only things that I actually know about are the things that I come into contact with, which are only, a, even in this world of information overload, is really just a very small part of experience and human experience. And even those things I come into contact with might not be exactly what I believe they are. But I know... Trust me, I know what's best for you and for the world. Vote. Make sure you vote. Have you voted yet? You know, it's, it's getting into that idea, though, you know, of how people see the world. I'd say be very careful about how you describe the world, especially if you think that your description is accurate. Be very careful about how you describe the world out loud. 
not because you might be wrong, but the more, I guess the more that you think you're describing reality as it is, the more careful you should be. Because if you think that you're not describing reality accurately, if you know that you're using hyperbole, that's actually better for you in a way because you're not going to convince yourself that you're absolutely right. And the example I always go to is when people say the world sucks. The world sucks. This whole thing that has so many good things, bad things, and everything in between, things that can be both good and bad at the same time or at different times, this very dynamic world, the totality of my experiences, it sucks. (laughs) Turns out it sucks. Garbage world, huh? But these sorts of mantras, this idea that the world sucks or that it's a garbage world. I hear it so often, so often that I say it on this show so often. I don't personally say that. I don't personally believe that. But I comment on other people saying that. I talk about what other people are talking about. And I've just heard over the last decade in particular, this sort of misanthropy that's a response to misanthropy, which is still misanthropy. This sort of like, I just hate people. They'll see somebody do something horrible. They'll read a news article or hear a story about somebody, some human being doing something hateful, like hurting somebody, hurting an animal. And they'll respond to that and say, I just hate people. And it's, they're venting. You know, they don't, somebody, when somebody says that, they don't mean I actually hate people. I hate people. They're not, they're not, they don't actually mean that. What they're saying is that somebody has greatly disappointed me. And that makes me view my own species with some level of contempt. But the more you repeat that, the more you feel it. And it's not a really good response. It's not good to respond to somebody doing something horrible in the world and to let that color your opinion of the entire of your entire species for one, but also the entire world. And the more that you say things like that, the more that you say, I hate people. Oh, it's a garbage world. The world sucks. The more that you reinforce that. Because even just you saying that out loud actually makes the world suck a little bit more. Not that you should be dishonest. Not that you should lie to yourself. Not that you shouldn't see reality, the bad aspects of reality. Not, not that you shouldn't see those or comment on those or just you know put blinders on. But you should be very careful about verbalizing that too much especially because if you verbalize it once you might have a tendency to continue to verbalize it you might start saying that too often and the people I know who say those things and here I am talking about the people don't you just hate the people who hate people because that's what people are often saying that's often what when someone says I hate people I hate people what they really mean is I hate people who hate people And then the next person, it's just like a big long chain. The next person comes along and they said, oh, you hate people who hate people? Well, I hate people who hate people who hate people. The next guy, he hates people who hates people who hates people who hates people. And then you're crazy. (laughs) Then Then you're just full circle back around to being the original person who hates people. That's just the circle. Uh, But, you know, you can easily get caught in that. You can easily get caught in that. And I mean, we've all probably been part of conversations where we say, oh, uh, you know, I, I was talking to Mary Lou, and she was talking, she was, the entire time I was hanging with Mary Lou, she was gossiping about uh, Cindy. And then now you're the one. Now you're the one who's gossiping about how Mary Lou was gossiping, and maybe Mary Lou was even talking about how Cindy was gossiping, and next thing you know, you're just one of them. 
And, you know, some of that stuff is inescapable. I think some things, just being an imperfect person in, in an imperfect world is just going to, you know, you're inevitably going to fall into into this kind of behavior somehow. Which is why if you catch yourself doing it and you try to avoid it, you're still going to do it, but you're going to do it less. And if you're careful about what you say out loud, and for that matter, what you think. But I, I believe when you verbalize this stuff, you actually do send it out there. You actually reinforce it. Because it's one thing to think it. That's powerful in its own right, to think something. But when you say it out loud, you reinforce that thought. Because the wonderful thing about thinking is even though it's powerful, even though it controls you in so many ways, even though it controls the way you see and interact with the world, it's not an investment. Yeah, there are certain thoughts that you can't shake. I've had recurring thoughts before where I'm just like, I wish I could stop thinking that. I wish I could stop. I, I wish that that thought would stop coming to me. And, you know, of course, meditation and, you know, different practices can help with that. But I have had that thought where I think I wish that thought would stop coming to me. But that said, it's an entirely different investment when you say it out loud, especially to another person. Because you can think a thought and not like it and decide, you know, I'm not going to invest in that. Even though that might keep coming back, I'm going to keep my distance from it. I'm going to keep my distance from that thought. And because you haven't sent it out into the world, you can let it go. But the second you've said something, it's almost like you have to stand by it. We have that idea. If you say something out loud, that you have to stand by it. And I think podcasts are a great example of that. Where, you know, granted this show doesn't have a large enough audience to to really get any feedback like that. But on some of the more popular podcasts that I'll listen to, if you look at comments, even from fans, even from people who listen to, especially from people who listen to every episode, they'll respond to some sort of casual conversation taking place on a podcast, and they'll be like, that person is a hypocrite because he said this in the last episode. Or... Because he said this, he has to stick by it. Oh my God, you, you, did you hear what he, I'm just trying to think of, of an actual concrete example. I mean, vote, let me just use my own show. Let's get self-referential, like where it's like saying people should vote by proxy. Because there are some people who would hear me say that and I know from my own just life experience from making those sorts of jokes to people that somebody would hear that and think that I'm being dead serious. That whole thing about your ballot, your vote ballot should be should be reassigned to a complete stranger who votes for you however they see fit. Me saying that, like, obviously a joke. Obviously tongue-in-cheek. Or I don't, Do I even need to say it? Do I even need... If you're listening to this show and you didn't know that was a joke, I'm impressed. But that said, you know, there are people who could hear me say something like that, and if there's not a drum roll afterward, they're not going to know I'm joking. They're going to say, I think that's a horrible idea. And it, that's happened to me so many times in the workplace, even with friends, even with people I care about. But it's happened to me so many times where I'll make an obviously facetious joke. I'll say, hey, you know, it would be great if uh, all of our ballots were randomly reassigned to strangers and they voted however they wanted for whatever presidential candidate they thought my name should vote for. And there's somebody who would respond to that and be like, that's a horrible idea. Oh my God, that's a horrible idea. You know, there's people who would do that because they do it all the time. Whereas if you give it to them with a punt, with a, you know, sort of a, you know, if, if you phrase it like a cartoon character or there's a drum roll behind it or a laugh track well they're gonna get it and that's the thing about laugh tracks that a lot of people don't understand is most people who think of themselves as reasonably intelligent are like oh man laugh tracks are so insulting they're telling us where the joke is they're trying to tell us where the joke is they must be some people are so stupid that they uh they don't even know where the joke is. And the reality is a lot of people don't. 
There's a lot of people, if there was no laugh track on sitcoms, there are a lot of otherwise intelligent people. Because I'm of the opinion that people aren't as dumb as people want everyone to be. I think people are a lot smarter than they get credit for. Smart in different ways. Aware in different ways. But that said, I mean, they are missing something. A lot of people are missing something. And I think, you know, humor is something that some people are just missing. Not that they don't have a sense of humor, but their ability to pick up on facetiousness, which is actually what most humor tends to be based on. I'm saying something that I don't completely mean, and it's sort of absurd, and that's what makes it funny. Not to say all humor is sarcastic. Not to say all humor is parody. But it, there is something to most humor where it's, it, it, you know, it's a little, it's outside of reality in some way, even if it's describing reality. Um, and facetiousness is that. And what makes facetiousness funny is that it's not overstated. Sometimes it's kind of subtle. And with sitcoms, which I'm not a big fan of, you know, I grew up watching Nick at Night religiously. I mean, I, I feel like I learned I mean, most of my knowledge of American culture came from Nick at Night, like especially the, the times before I was born. But, you know, you think about laugh tracks and laugh tracks are there to tell you that the character is trying to be funny. They're not even trying to encourage you to laugh. I don't think laugh tracks are there to tell you, make sure you laugh with the fake audience. They're just letting you know that that was a joke. Because the reality is, if sitcoms didn't have laugh tracks, there are a lot of people who would not get the cue. They would be like, that was a weird thing for that character to say. That was weird. Because that's what they do to you. That's what people will do to you in the flesh if you make a joke that is facetious or that's a little too subtle. And I'm not talk I'm not saying that it has to be some complex, advanced, oh, my sense of humor is so advanced that it's beyond human comprehension. I'm not even talking about that. I'm not even talking about some sort of Andy Kaufman like where, you know, I don't know, where it just operates in some sort of unknown zone like I'm not even talking about that I'm talking about just blatant lines like like things that are punchlines basically quips as they call them quips I'm talking about quips blatant quips there are people who just they won't know how to respond if there's not some sort of you know I've said the same thing about comedy where you know I'm not a big stand-up comedy fan I've never been to I mean I guess I've been to some open mic sort of events but I've never gone and seen a true stand-up comedy show but you think about that and if that person wasn't on stage and if those people didn't knowingly go to a comedy club they might not laugh at that but because they it's in context for them they know that that person is a comedian and they know they are inside of a place called a comedy club, and as an audience member, they are there to laugh, it makes them more receptive to, to humor. And of course, you know, there's a lot of people who are not going to laugh. There's a lot of people who will be like, well, that's not funny. This guy's supposed to be a comedian, and he's not funny. But when you watch a stand-up comedy show, a special, and you see people doubling over with laughter, a large part of that is they are intoxicated by the experience of being at a comedy show and knowing that that is what they are there for. But if a comedian was a coworker or just somebody, an acquaintance of yours, and they said some of the things they say without, you know, a, a performative voice, but it was still, still just as funny, that person might not get it. And this isn't me saying people are dumb. I'm just saying that people need context. And a laugh track gives them context that that's supposed to be funny. This isn't a drama. It's a comedy. So that thing you just heard, it's supposed to be funny. And so that's just an interesting thing where, you know, people do need some sort of prompt sometimes to laugh. And I guess what got into this is just the voting by proxy thing where I've just had too many experiences in my life where I say something like that and somebody's like, that's a bad idea. 
And sometimes someone's trying to be funny when they say that, but sometimes it's just, whoa, that person thinks that I'm completely sincere. I'm totally sincere. But I do have a philosophy where, you know, even though you should be careful about saying things out loud, even though you should be careful what you verbally invest in, I'm a believer that if you filter it through humor, it's going to be better just for your own sake. It's going to be a, you're going to have a healthier relationship to the things you say if you can filter it through humor. And it's a different kind of investment, I guess. <laughs> it's a di- if you if you're trying to be funny when you say something out loud, it's it's a different kind of investment. I think it is though. I think you're going to be less attached to it cuz you're you're going to first of all expect other people to respond to it differently. But you're also going to tre- it's you're going to treat it lighter. It's going to get a lighter treatment from you. You're going to invest in it differently. And sometimes people do say things out loud as a joke that they actually mean because they're they don't want people to invest in it because that's the thing is when you say something out loud not only are you making an investment in that thought but somebody else is going to invest in it too by simply hearing it if you're lucky enough to have somebody listen to you and pay attention that itself is an investment in what you are saying so you are investing in a thought enough to bring it out into the world to make it real in that way And somebody who listens to you is making an investment too. Not just investing their time, but investing a part of their brain. And that's the amazing thing about being listened to. Is that that person is investing their awareness, their consciousness right now. That thing that rules their entire being, as long as they are a living human being. Their consciousness that they can only direct toward really one thing at a time. Hence us not getting listened to. You know, that's why we feel unlistened to so often is because that person might not, they, they might not be intentionally disrespectful. Like somebody who's tuning you out or somebody who's just not listening to every word you're saying. Maybe they're thinking about the next thing they're going to say. They're thinking about the next investment they're going to make into their own thoughts. They're thinking about the next thing they're going to say out loud. So they're not listening to you. They're waiting for their chance to speak. Or something is distracting them. So you think about that, just the fact that we're lucky if someone is listening to us at all. Because they only have so much awareness in any given moment. And they can really only direct it at one thing. But the idea that somebody is directing their awareness at you is amazing. That they're using everything they have in this moment, which is right now. Everything they have is right now. And they're listening to you say something. And that's an investment on their part, and it's investment on it's an investment on your part, which is why you have to be so careful about what you say. Not that you should be trembling. Oh man, the schoolboy! That guy on the schoolboy show said uh, everything I say is an investment by me, and an investment by the person who's listening to me. I, I can't say anything because it's it's gonna ruin, it's gonna make the world suck. <laughs> I can't say anything because it's going to make the world suck. You know, it's something to consider, but, uh, you know, you shouldn't worry about everything you say. You're an imperfect person living in an imperfect world, and that should be a relief. Because it's not a relief when you phrase it as, oh, the world sucks because bad things happen. Oh, it's a garbage world because people do nasty, hurtful things. Because nature itself has a nastiness to it. Because nature itself is brutal and unpredictable and confusing. You know, it's it's one thing, yeah, it's one thing to, you know, to recognize the imperfection of reality. And the, as a part of, as a participant in the great imperfection, 
you yourself being one component that is imperfect, participating in a larger whole that is also imperfect, but in being whole is also somehow perfect, not to get too philosophy 101. Isn't the fact that it's all imperfect somehow a form of perfection? I would say yeah, but we don't need to go there today, even though we already did. Um, But, uh, you know, I think acknowledging the imperfection of everything should be a relief. It's it's why the idea of original sin isn't a condemnation. It's actually a relief. Because you no longer have to worry about being perfect. When you acknowledge that there is a great imperfection that you are an imperfect part of, you realize, oh, I can actually be imperfect and that's totally fine. I can strive for perfection, but I don't, I don't have to beat myself up when I don't reach that unattainable goal. But some people, they, they realize that the world is imperfect and they think, you know, I'm going to go all the way in the opposite direction. The world is imperfect and there are horrible things out there, so I'm going to be horrible too. And I think when you say, when, and when you phrase it that way, when you say the world is horrible because horrible things exist, when you start to contextualize the world based on its worst qualities, you cater to those qualities. And when you say that out loud, you are investing in the worst parts of being. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be a monster. It doesn't mean that you're going to kill people. It doesn't mean that you're going to hurt people. But you're probably going to be kind of weak. You know, you're probably going to be a, a force of weakness. You're going to default, you know, that investment is going to default in the form of weakness. Maybe not all the time, but I, I, I see it happen. And the people I know who are the most depressed and anxious, I've seen many of them repeat these kind of mantras, even before they were in the current state they're in. And I'm not saying there isn't something chemical. I'm not saying it's all within their control. Oh, people who are depressed and anxious, it's all their fault. I mean, they're already thinking that. Someone who has a a serious enough depression or anxiety uh, issue they're already beating themselves up a lot. But I have known certain people, people personally, who have repeated these sorts of mantras long enough. They've invested in these thoughts enough by verbalizing them that I believe they have, if not made themselves depressed and anxious, they have reinforced their depression and anxiety to the point that it's no longer manageable. And that doesn't mean that you can get out of that just by thinking positive. But, you know, you do hear about people managing to gain more control over their depression and anxiety by verbalizing positive things, by being grateful to the point where that's an annoying cliche. Gratitude. What what you're missing is gratitude. Make a gratitude list. When you wake up every morning... Make a gratitude list. Have an attitude. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to rhyme gratitude with a word that sounds like gratitude. But you hear about those working for people. You do hear about those sorts of ideas working. And I, you know, I, I've always felt you know, I, I've just never wanted to do that myself. I've never wanted to look in a mirror and say, empower. And, and you know, I've never wanted to express platitudes. Even though you often find out, even if you try, the more you try to avoid platitudes, I feel the more you're going to be in for a shock when you find out they're true. But I, I guess I always try to take a roundabout approach to those things. But I can't escape the fact that those things are helpful. And if you can find your own way to do it, you know, even though it's going to be your ego who wants to do it that way, who says, I have to find my own way of saying it or doing it, you know, even if you have to do that, 
I think you're going to find that these things are just universal. And when you do say things that are generally negative all the time, and especially if they're negative but not filtered through humor. Not that that is a... Not that you can cheat the system entirely. I mean, you can say all kinds of horrible things and just be like, I'm just kidding. And you're not going to cheat the system. But it is... I, I do feel that that kind of lubricates it. It kind of softens the barbs, the spikes of negativity when it's done in the spirit of humor. But, uh, I don't know. It, it, it seems, though, if, if you're just making a blanket statement, a sincere blanket statement trying to say, oh, the world sucks, or this is bad, or screw that person, without lubricating it in humor, it is going to hurt you the more often you do it. It is going to hurt you the more you invest in it. Because I want to explain that idea of investment, too, where saying something out loud is an investment. Well, think about somebody who has taken a stance on something, which is to say they've expressed it out loud. They They have a strong opinion, especially politically, socially, some sort of social or political cause. They have a lot of trouble backing down from that. It's very difficult for that person who's made a public statement of some kind. And to the larger the audience, the more invested they are in it. It's very difficult for them to back down from that. And not even saying I'm wrong, because that, that's very difficult for people, is to say I'm wrong, I was wrong. But even just to say my opinion has changed, even to get away from right and wrong, just to say, oh, my stance on that has changed. That's very difficult for people to do because they've invested in this one stance. They have verbalized it. Whereas if they kept that in their head, they might think that. But if that thought changed, there would be less resistance to fight the change. There's a different level of investment. Somebody might struggle with that. I mean, I do. When my opinion inside changes, even if I've never said something out loud, when I find that my thought has changed and I'm aware of it, which is awesome when you're aware of your own thoughts changing. But when I realize that a thought of mine has changed, (laughs) as my thoughts change, no, but when I realize that a thought of mine has changed, I let it. I don't, there's no resistance really because it's all inside of you. You just go, oh, that changed. And if you really want to examine, if you really want to do some searching, some soul-searching, you might wonder why it changed if you're not already aware, if you're not sure what prompted that change. But the difference is when you say it out loud, there's going to be this resistance because you think to yourself, oh, I invested in this one way of thinking, and that's now a part of my identity. And not only is it part of my identity, but if I admit that my opinion has changed or that I was wrong even, it's going to somehow make my character weaker in other people's eyes. Whether they agree with me or disagree, those people are going to see me as a temporary being in a temporary world. Oh my God. Who knew that being a temporary being in a temporary world would produce temporary thoughts, temporary statements, temporary ideas... Who knew that the things that I say out loud could be just as fleeting as my body? As everything that I build, as, as fleeting as everything that I know. And that's not to minimize it, it's simply stating a fact, that it's fleeting. A temporary person in a temporary world saying temporary things. And that doesn't mean that those temporary things don't matter. But if you see things that way, if you see this all as temporary, there's going to be less resistance when something changes. And I mean, it's one of the reasons, you know, death is obviously the big one. It's one of the reasons why people struggle with death so much. Because they think, I'm always going to know this person in the form they're currently in. 
They're always going to have this phone number. I'm always going to be able to call them. And even if they don't think that through, even if they're not thinking always, even if they're not conscious of that thought, because chances are they're not, but they are living and thinking in such a way, they're taking it for granted. And I don't think there's anything wrong for with taking things for granted. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you get caught up in that, you can be in for a shock when those things that you took for granted are no longer granted. Permission to observe and experience those things is no longer granted. And death is a big one where it's like, I know this person and I get to experience them. Love, hate them, anything in between, I get to experience this other person and now they're dead. And that's a shock. It's a sh- it, no matter who you are, no matter what your relationship is to life and death, no matter how much you've thought about it, that's going to be a shock. It's the biggest shock when someone you know and love dies. But if you understand the temporary nature of reality, that you are a temporary person, everything else you experience is temporary, including your own thoughts, everything. When someone does die, you might struggle, but you're going to realize it's part of the process. And while that should inform you while you're living, you know, if you understand that the people you know are not always going to be around, or you're not always going to be around, you might be the one who dies. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to, to shock you even further, but uh, you might be the one who dies before somebody else. Oh, my God. Me? Where's the laugh track? You, the thing you said, I, I don't hear a laugh track. A laugh track. Uh, but, you know, we always think, you know, when we do think about that, when we think about how things are temporary, which, you know, a lot of people are aware of, we think, oh, well, that's going to make you treat people better. The reality is it doesn't necessarily. I mean, you know, my mom died 10 months ago, and the closest person in the world to me, my favorite person in the entire world, and of course, like, I think that the process has been made easier by the fact that I think about this and that I do see this physical reality as temporary. And I do believe in something beyond this physical reality as well. I think that that has helped me as well as her belief in that. Because it's nice to know when somebody else sees things the same way. You worry less about them. Because if, if my mom was somebody who feared death, which she didn't, and she told me that since I was a little kid, and she was a healthy, you know, she, she lived a good, happy life. So, you know, it wasn't like, when I say she didn't fear death, it wasn't in a nihilistic way where it's like, I don't care what happens. It was just that she was not worried about the end of this life. And she lived her life like somebody who was ready for any kind of judgment if it exists. She lived her life like somebody who would not be ashamed about the life that she lived. I I think that'd be a good way to put it. She lived a life that... She lived life as if she would not be ashamed about her conduct. And she didn't know what... And while she was a spiritual person in many ways, she didn't know what's to come when all is said and done. But having a parent or just anybody in your life who isn't just white-knuckling every surface, you know, it's it's like this is not a person who's grabbing at the handlebars of life, clinging on, just utterly afraid of dying at every second. And so that's helpful when the person who's dying, when you know that the person who's dying did not fear death. But it's amazing how how even though all of this is so temporary, even though we know nobody doesn't believe in death, <laughs> you know, like there's nobody out there who doesn't believe in death, whether they've experienced someone they know dying, it doesn't actually matter. There's nobody out there who just straight up doesn't believe in it. 
I don't believe people die. I don't, I don't believe people die. I haven't seen it. Therefore, people don't die. Uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody who actually believes that. I'm sure, of course, somebody does. Of course, you can find me an example of someone who said that. But, you know, even though there's nobody out there who, who believes that death isn't real, or, you know, Hellhammer, on, only death is real, or Celtic Frost, whatever, whichever one of those said that, I can't, can't remember offhand. Only death is real. I don't believe only death is real. But I believe death is real. And so we know, so, so I mean, with that in mind, the point I'm getting at is that everybody understands that death is real, and the fact that death is real means that all of this is temporary one way or another, yet we invest in our thoughts, especially when we say them out loud, we invest in the thoughts we verbalize in such a way that totally rejects that understanding that we all have. It's cognitive dissonance, in my opinion, to believe that something you say cannot be retracted, or it cannot shift, it cannot evolve, it cannot change. It can't change on an hourly basis, we feel. Oh, your opinion on that has changed, and somehow that reflects poorly on you. Or you said something that you didn't actually mean. You were just verbalizing a thought you had in that exact moment. The circumstances you were in, the way that your brain was working in this one little moment led you to make a statement that later you contradicted or that you didn't truly believe in. And that's what I was talking about with these popular podcasts. Now that we have people listening to hours and hours of the same person talking every week, the same person having conversations every week, people hear them say something and they're like, well, that he said something different last week. He said something different in the same conversation. And like, imagine if all of your person-to-person conversations were recorded and how hypocritical you would sound. So the idea of somebody recording their thoughts, somebody doing a podcast or some kind of show, the idea of, of their statements being contradictory or hypocritical, I mean, it's one thing if they're really, if that's their platform for that idea. If they're really going all in on an idea, I understand kind of being like, well, hey, maybe... Maybe you're being a little contradictory. You know, I understand pointing that out if it's if it's really something that person is going for. But when something is simply conversational, your mind is going to go all over the place and your thoughts will react to how you feel when you wake up. You know, I always use the example of homelessness where if you're feeling really good, if you got enough sleep... You've eaten well. If maybe you're not worried about anything, you're not feeling particularly fearful, maybe you have a positive attitude, and a homeless person asks you for money, whether you give it to them or not, you're just going to be like, oh, that person's really struggling. Whatever situation that person was in that led them to become homeless sucks. The world doesn't suck because there's a homeless guy in it, but it sucks that they're is homelessness. And I whether I can help them or not, I feel genuinely bad for that guy. Whereas if you didn't get enough sleep, if you ate like shit, if you had other stuff going on that was just giving you a negative disposition for the day, and a homeless guy asks you for money, your mind might go to a completely different place where you're just like, oh, man, homelessness is such a... These people, uh, he probably did something to get himself in that situation. And, uh, you know, there's this, this way too many homeless people in this city now. You know, you might go to that place with it, and you're not an asshole for having both of those thoughts at different times. You're not a hypocrite. Yeah, you should have compassion. You should aim for compassion. You're not a hypocrite, though, for having those different thoughts, especially when your own being is centered differently in those moments. Like maybe in the first example, you're very centered. 
In the second example, you're off balance. You're off balance in your own life. Therefore, everything that you experience is going to feel like it's keeping you off balance. And you're going to see things as if they too are, are as imbalanced as you feel. And you know what? And you, as the day goes on, you know, your body might, you might drink some coffee. You start to feel more awake. You eat a healthy meal. You get exercise. And that same day that you were just so disturbed by the homeless problem, that night you might experience another person asking you for change and you're back to being compassionate. Are you a flip-flopper? No, the way you feel is temporary. And if the way you feel is temporary, the way you think is temporary. And while there are certain foundations and values you should have, there are some things that you should, you know, try to make less temporary if you can, which I think I would phrase as your values. You know, in a recent episode, I was reading those Buddhist precepts, which have a lot in common with the Ten Commandments. Some of, There were five Buddhist precepts, but they have a, a lot in common with the Ten Commandments. There's certainly some crossover there. Turns out that different cultures, different spiritual beliefs, different people in different places and times have come to the same conclusions about right and wrong or how to wire yourself what your values should be. It turns out there's a lot of harmony harmony in those different times and places and ways of thinking. It turns out they're actually not entirely different ways of thinking. So there are certain values that you should try to maintain. And I think one reason you know those are good values is because you will find them in a lot of different places. The people that you consider truly wise, the people you know who seem the most balanced, will also live according to those values. And you should always look to the people who either you know in your own life or you see out in the world who you feel are living according to values that you respect. Because seeing those people, noticing those people will help you maintain those values for yourself. And that's something to invest in. I think values are something to invest in. But every little thing you say, you know, first of all, be careful about saying it because saying it out loud at all is an investment. Even if you're good at even if you're like, you know, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I know that the things I say are not something that I have to maintain. And I don't care if somebody calls me a hypocrite. I don't care if I there's if somebody thinks that I'm contradicting something else I said. I'm sure that I contradict myself 10 times in every individual episode on this show. I know that I contradict myself all day long. I know it. I don't like to contradict my values. And when I contradict my values, it causes me great distress. That sucks. I feel very imperfect when I do that. But I'm glad that that stings. Because if you start going against your values and it no longer stings when you do that, that's a problem. That means you're becoming something else. That means you're, you're, if it no longer stings to go against your values, that means your values are becoming something else. And that's different than changing your opinion. That's different than understanding that your thoughts are temporary or even the things you say are temporary. And I do believe that the more you verbalize certain ideas, the more those do reinforce your values, which is why you should be careful about saying them, especially if you feel they're true. That's what I said earlier, and I want to get back to that. You should be even more careful about saying something if you think it's accurate, because that means that you believe it. And again, if you're saying something and you know you don't believe it, well, you're either saying it for some sort of self-survival, it's some sort of benefit, 
or it's expected of you, like you're in a customer service job and you lie and you say, your girlfriend broke up with you the night before, you feel like shit. And a customer comes in and is like, how are you? And you're like, I'm great. Oh, so you want to deposit a check. Uh, You know, it's like you're a bank teller and you pretend that you're doing great because that's part of the job because it turns out being in some sort of customer service job doesn't allow you to express how you really feel because I don't think people would like that you're oh I'm going to deposit a check into my banking account but the the cashier the teller at the bank told me that their girlfriend broke up with them and they feel like shit I don't trust that person with my money (laughs) you know on some level I think that's part of it is that we trust people more if they tell us they're great even though we know it's just this ritual we know it's just this this game, I think we don't want to hear that the person who's handling our money or performing some sort of service is in a bad state of mind. But the person knows that, you know, they're, they don't feel good. Although there's something to be said for saying that out loud, because this is how I discovered, I mean, honest to God, this is how I discovered the power of words. <laughs> This is how I discovered the power of words. It's the start of a self-help seminar, but it's true. How I discovered it was I used to not pay attention to small talk with grocery store cashiers. Uh, You know, I would would go through the motions of it, but I would just be like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. But I realized that if I... If I said, oh, I'm doing great. Like, I remember there was a particular morning where I was at, I think it was at Trader Joe's. I was at Trader Joe's. And I was not in a good mood. I was in a bad mood. And the cashier asked me how I was doing. And I decided to not only say I'm doing great, but to say it like I meant it. Not over the top. I wasn't trying to scare him. I didn't like put a big smile on my face, but I decided to say it in a voice. I decided to use a voice that somebody who's feeling great would use. And I remember as I was leaving the store, I noticed that I felt better. Nothing had actually changed the situation. I don't even remember. I don't even remember why I was in a bad mood. There might not even have been a reason. But what I remember is saying, oh, I feel great, or I'm doing great, how are you? Saying it with a little bit of a lift in my voice completely changed my morning. Maybe it didn't fundamentally change my entire day, but I distinctly remember where I was at, walking out of that store, thinking, wow. That was almost like a little, like I cast a little spell, like I did some sort of trick. And I don't think it's a trick. I, you know, I don't think it's manipulate. I don't think you're manipulating reality. I don't think you're lying to yourself. I don't think there's anything dishonest about that. I think that it's simply how things work. Does that mean you can get through your entire life just by giving your voice a little lift, by saying things with a little lift in it? You know, I don't think that everything works that way. I mean, I, you know, we again, we live in a dynamic world. But I realized that that worked. And since then, I, I keep that in mind. And it's it's honestly, it's just from there, it's like when you realize something like that, that is an epiphanous moment. And then you start reading about platitudes and you realize that those are true. Like that, what I just said, you know, I learned the power of words. That's a platitude. That's a self-help cliche. And I never would have taken it seriously even though I've always intuitively understood the power of words, because I like to talk, I like to say things, I like to express my opinion, I never really thought about how your words make you feel and how your words make you see reality around you. And how in turning your thoughts into words that you say out loud is really, is really a form of spellcasting. I think that's what all of this comes down to, is it's a form of spellcasting. And when you express the opposite, when, you, when everything you say is on a down note, and it's 
not only pointing out the imperfections of the world, but pointing out the imperfections in such a way that you condemn the world and you condemn yourself. Because again, recognizing the imperfection of the world should be liberation. It should give you a full range of motion. Whereas people, their minds are geared in this way that they think that an imperfect world is a bad world. An imperfect world includes bad things, but it is not a completely bad world. And if you see things in the world, if your experience in life, I mean, this is really hard if somebody's experiences in life have been horrible, and I can't help them. Not that I'm trying to help anybody. I mean, this show is very much preach what I need. Everything on this show is what I need, what I have learned that helps me. And that's why I say it. And saying it again and again continues to help me. Because again, this show is a testament to the fact that saying things out loud reinforces things. And in having certain changes in my outlook, I have no doubt that verbalizing these things on my show over the last few years has actually made some of the thoughts I share on this show more real in my life. And in that way, this isn't that much different than looking in a mirror and saying, you're a big, strong woman and nobody can hold you back. In a year, you're going to get the keys to your first apartment? You know, it's, it's not that much different from that. It's still me talking to myself. It's still me saying things that I believe in. But in saying these things I believe in, I believe in them more. I'm investing in them more. And that doesn't mean I don't say things on here that I regret or that I disagree with two seconds after I say them or that contradict something I said 10 minutes ago. Of course that happens. But still, there's something to be said to putting things in words. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.